0: This is Art Speaks, a program presented by the William Cain Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. I'm your host today, Emily Jordan, and our guest is Meg Smith. How are you doing today, Meg?
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Emily? I'm doing good.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, For those in the audience, Meg is an art historian, um, and she has a specialization in classics, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So um, tell people where you're from, Meg.
1: Oh, so I'm a Nashville, Tennessee native. Um, which I know is a rarity, so I do like to introduce myself with that fact. Uh, but yes, so I went to Vanderbilt, uh, majored in history of art with a minor in Mediterranean studies. I think it's also the what I would call the discipline formerly known as classics that was rebranded recently. <laughs> So
0: that's what the subject of our talk is about today. We're going to talk about the myths and repatriation of classical antiquities. Um, So we're going to talk about some architecture, some sculptures, some sculptural architecture of ancient Greece, ancient Rome.
1: Um, And Meg, you've actually been to Rome before, correct? Yes, I was fortunate enough to go May of 2018 as part of a course just discussing the art and architecture of ancient Rome. You know, I think um, I'd reflected pretty immediately that being there as part of a class with a professor, I think made me more appreciative of it than, you know, guidebooks can only take you so far.
0: Yeah, being fully immersed in the environment with an expert mm-hmm. is probably yeah. the best way to learn about the Absolutely. classics. Um, what all did you guys go see where you were in Rome?
1: Um, so we got to see, you know, the classics, the Colosseum, um, the large victory arches. And we also went out and we went to see Hadrian's Villa, um, some of the different Roman baths that are uh, still up today. And we, all, we walked the Appian Way, which <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, they haven't repaved it since the Roman times. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it's pretty, it very pretty rocky. <laughs> pretty rocky but you know we actually got to also see some catacombs that were a few centuries old I and I also learned that uh most catacombs if you are taller than six feet it is very difficult to navigate through but you know just getting to see things that are still standing centuries later um it's very special because I think it takes you out of um just the moment you live in and remember that we are one brief moment in the overall context that is human history.
0: Yeah, that's very well put. I feel like the sort of stereotype for classics is you're sitting in a a dark basement classroom with no windows while a really old professor teaches you things that you would never care about elsewise, but being in the moment in the location where so many people stood before you, that is really special. Um, did any of the locations or objects that you saw really seem different than what you thought of beforehand when you're studying them in a classroom setting?
1: Oh, I will say a lot of the pottery, you expect it to be larger. Oh I mean, yeah, That's probably because it's projected, you know, onto a massive wall so it looks like it's at least six feet tall and um, I'm thinking in particular I was able to see Ajax and Achilles playing a game. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe two feet tall, more just kind of the stamp. It's like standard pot size. Like I kept expecting it um, to just be massive because it's hard to uh, get an idea of the size of things in relation to each other. And that's what can be kind of odd about studying art history is that, you know, since it's much harder to have a hands on opportunity. So it's mostly images on a screen and not being able to tell um the size of something i think that's just a such a crucial element to understanding a work one thing we got to see was the boxer at rest it's a bronze statue from greece and on the screen it um you know it shows he has like kind of the cauliflower ears and a broken nose and you know you can even see where like little drops of blood are shown running down his cheeks and very powerful image um just on its own but seeing it in person you're really struck by how lifelike these are and it yes getting to see um just getting to see these details up close I think is so important because it's part of um, the little quirks that make each work original. And if you can't experience those, it's like you've only really seen about 85 to 90% of the object.
0: Yes, that is very important. We're super used to looking at things on a PowerPoint, um, sitting in a desk in a, you know, air conditioned classroom and not in Rome where it's a thousand degrees, but um, Mm -hmm. sort of, discussing the middle ground between those two things. I know, especially with the pandemic since 2020, it's been really difficult to travel, um, especially for historians and academics. So um, Meg and I actually have experience um, researching digital heritage, um, which was where um, a lot of these classical antiquities were formatted in a a 3D format to people um, in order for people to see what they look like. So we actually got to volunteer for a project about the Roman Forum, where people would come and they would put on the you know the Oculus Rift 3D goggles, um, and you would be transported into this this Roman Forum that's completely digitized and it's 3D modeled. Um, and like you were discussing scale earlier, when I was in there, I mean I've seen pictures of the Roman Forum, what it was supposed to look like, and what the ruins look like now, but I had no idea that it was so massive, and just being a teeny tiny fake person in this computer program was just very awe-inspiring, imagining how huge and impressive the actual Roman Forum would have been back when, you know, actual Romans lived there. So that's kind of like a nice middle ground. If you can't go travel, obviously you can't go travel back in time to then either. So um, our digital cultural heritage experience is really helpful when it comes to stuff like that which is another talking point for our discussion today, we're gonna talk about some of the myths of classical antiquities. And during our uh, sort of digital heritage research, Meg and I have done together, we worked on this project where we had to restore some of the ionic-free sculptures from the Parthenon. And for those of you who don't know, the Parthenon is the big rectangle temple that's in Athens, and it's really impressive, but not a lot of people know that that's colored, that a lot of those sculptures had polychromy on them. So Meg, why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, that just it shook me to my core I think the first time I heard that you know this frieze and so many other statues they were painted at one point. And so places like the Parthenon, I think we often hear um, you know it's a temple and think of it in our terms of temple like where you are going in, it's a place to gather to like worship. That's not the case for the Parthenon when they built it, it's more of it's an offering to the God. It's, you know, like the giant statue of, I'm sure many people have seen Disney's Hercules with the large statue of Zeus inside and how it comes to life. It's, you know, fairly accurate because it is a belief of it was a place for, um, you know, the God to live and embody. And so part of that was making it look as lifelike as possible. And a big reason I think people don't realize so many of these uh, works were painted is, it's, it's almost amusing um, how kind of simple the answer is, is these sculptures were displayed outside, mm. you know, exposed to the wind and the rain and all of the elements. So even by the time the Romans arrived, so many of these sculptures had just had all the colors and accoutrements washed away, so they thought it was white. And the Romans, they love some Greek (laughs) art. (laughs) And so they saw these statues, they believed were just white marble and started doing this um, mass production of them. Um, You can probably compare it to a paint, a wall print, you see at Target that (laughs) there are dozens of them. And so that's what spread was, it was the Romans who inadvertently helped spread that belief that these uh, statues were you know, just plain marble, like the pure white is an important aspect. And no, it just was a case of, if you don't ask the people who've been there for a while, why something is the way it is, you're probably gonna miss something huge.
0: Yeah. When you keep your marble sculptures outside for centuries and you just painted them and, you know, back then they didn't have the nice primers no and varnishes. Primer that we got all in one. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So when you've got these sculptures that are painted in Egyptian blue and like this nice matter lake, red and green and all those beautiful colors, like no one's going to know that if they washed away. And even today, I would say probably like, I don't know, 80% of marble sculptures from antiquity don't have any traces of paint left on them, even though they were probably pretty obviously painted, but that's just mm-hmm. something that our new tools that we have in the 21st century cannot pick up. And so there's a there's a book that we like to talk about called Gods in Color by um, Vincent Brinkmann. And he has done some groundbreaking research for the 21st century in this classical antiquity polychromy, I guess is what you would call it, Mm -hmm. Um, so if anyone is interested and doesn't know much about this subject definitely go check that book out Um, but Brinkmon goes through these really well-known statues that are in different museums around the world and he takes these you know ultraviolet x-rays and all that stuff to look and see what remaining pigment is still on these sculptures and his findings were amazing and with his research he kind of took artistic liberty and restored a lot of the polygamy on these sculptures. And if you guys, I mean, I can't show you pictures over a, a talk show, but if you want to go Google some of these sculptures, they're just, they're mind blowing. You would never expect them to be colored the way they are, which a lot of people find off-putting sometimes, but like this is a scientific fact. This is a pigment that was found on the stone. And it's just not something people are used to in this day and age.
1: Yes, I think it um is, I don't know if the word upsetting is quite right, but can be upsetting for people to realize (laughs) that um, they were painted brightly, they were gaudy. I once heard a professor refer to Athens as the Las Vegas of the ancient world, like they had all these, (laughs) I want to show them off, and I love that you mentioned the artistic liberty that is taken, because we have to do that, that's working, uh, working with antiquities, it is similar. It feels as though you have been given three quarters of the puzzle pieces and have to somehow figure mm. out the rest of the puzzle. And even, you know, in our digitization project, I remember, you know, it was take artistic liberties, but have a reason to back it up. Yes. There was a horse in my scene. And so I spent so many too much time in the library going over articles that would say and we found these records that had how many horses of each color were like evident in this category so like here are the number of brown horses and there were you know brown horses with white specks white horses with brown specks like just Mm -hmm. very specific and so I think it's one of those cases where um you know, you can say for certain there was at least one brown horse in these calvins. <laughs> I think I can
0: justify. There's know. at least a five percent chance you're right, and that's the cool yes. correct it's color. High
1: chance, you know, if it's in the records, like that, can help guide the artist. exactly And it's great um, what you said about. I think uh, this mix of digitization and virtual reality it makes classics more well antiquities, um, more accessible, which mm. is not a word that I would normally associate mm. with art history as far back as you know, the grand tour where the uh, sons of wealthy families in Europe would travel country to country and see these masterpieces. I don't know if you know anyone who's been able to do this kind of trip, but it's just not um, sustainable for everyone. No, not. Um, I'm just glad that uh we can use this digitization to I think make it almost easier to where being able to see these things, you know, like the Roman Forum in its height. You don't have to get on a plane or have a time machine to get to experience these things. And that's a gift.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's definitely more accessible. You're listening to WEHC's Art Speaks on 90.7 FM. So Meg, when we talk about accessibility, I think we also need to talk about sort of the um, harmful effects that classics has had over the years, Mm -hmm. sort of stereotypical traditional aspects that classics kind of uh, supported back in the the day that you were just (laughs) describing. So when we talk about how shocked people are when they discover that they're you know, pure white marble, Greek Mm -hmm. and Roman statues are not the pure white that they think they are. Mm -hmm. And if you think about art history as a whole, you start to recognize this pattern of pure white sculpture being used in connection to white supremacy during history.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: if people aren't really making that connection and you're listening right now, I would recommend watching the Olympia film from the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Um, the movie maker for that directly compared these sculptures in Athens, the architecture, the marble sculptures, all of that wrapped in in one nice classical bow, and directly juxtaposed it with these Aryan people in the Olympics with their blonde hair, blue eyes, perfect athletic build. And it Mm -hmm. was, it was sort of like a promo for the Berlin Olympics. It was it was a direct comparison of, you know, classical antiquity, pure whiteness, and Hitler's idea of pure whiteness in the 20th century, and it was just such a a jarring juxtaposition of these two ideas together.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, it's part of why it's so important that people don't know these statues were painted, is it's just been a theme throughout my education in antiquities. Everyone wants to be like the ancient Greeks. Especially, you know, with the sayings that they're the inventors of democracy and they created the Socratic method, like they're leaders in, you know, education and intelligence. And it's because people saw these all-white statues, they, and I do not support this logic at all. Um, said, oh well, the Greeks were the greatest society, and here's what they valued, which was, you know, this whiteness. We are white. Therefore, we are most like the ancient Greeks and we are better than you. Not true, but that's the kind of convoluted logic that can be undercut with something as simple as, um, (laughs) these statues weren't white. I don't know where this, you know, to go from, um, the Greeks to these blonde haired, blue eyed and saying, these are the same when they're not, it's that harmful, it's harmful, that mm-hmm. ignorance, and it's used to justify these just horrible beliefs that whiteness is better and that it's always been better. And there's historical precedent because look at these um, statues that uh, have been around for centuries. And it's infuriating to have really, you know, to bring our history, be co-opted by the <laughs> white power movement. I it's a, it's upsetting. And it shows just how much um, not fully understanding the history of what you're seeing can really skew how it's perceived.
0: Exactly. And I think in some of our research in our, our pro, excuse me, <laughs> polychromy studies, mm-hmm. um, I do, I remember seeing more contemporary pamphlets for like the Proud Boys or white supremacists who exist in today's society where they directly just printed these white sculptures from Roman and uh, Greek antiquity and just used that to promote their ideologies because mm-hmm. I mean you maybe not might not look at something like that and think like oh yes this is you know a long line of history of people doing this like it's just a nice sculpture but when yes. you really sit back and look at how these things are connected, it's such a harmful perception to have that these these sculptures were just this pure white, and the ideologies behind that are very damaging to society.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's just what sparked my passion about, you know, whether it's through formal research or casual conversations with peers of wanting to spread that information, not only for historical accuracy, but also to dismantle this connection that's been made um, between white supremacy and Greek sculpture—it yeah. it leaves me at a loss for words, because you know then that ties into the whole issue of now you know repatriation of items to museums, and it's predominantly museums, you know, in Europe, or with a large white population that has taken objects from col- people they colonized people of color and have quite literally stolen their culture so it's it's disheartening to see such a beautiful field like art history used to inflict so much pain Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and I think before we move on to the topic of repatriation art history as a whole has been whitewashed since its foundation basically Um, if we look at you know, research from ancient scholars up to well, maybe not ancient, mm-hmm. but you know, Victorian, medieval, mm-hmm. up until even today. If we see sculpture rendered with the same amount of culture and skill as you know, ancient Greece and Rome, mm-hmm. but it's in it's in somewhere like Egypt, or it's in you know, South mm-hmm. Asia, Southeast Asia, um, or just anywhere in Africa. Like a lot of those cultures, painted their sculptures or they had, you know, carved reliefs on their temples and deities and things like that, that were, you know, polychromized, I guess, if that's a word. Uh
1: Yeah,
0: because it's so much more festive. It's so much more lifelike. And that's kind of the whole idea of making sculptures as a culture is you want Mm -hmm. something to represent life and adding color to that is the best way to do so. But in art history, research that's been done throughout its entire past has not equated these things to classical antiquities you know classical antiquities Mm -hmm. have always been at least a step higher than like the the nefertiti bust from egypt that's probably one (laughs) of the most famous examples one Um, of
1: the most stunning works of art i've ever seen exactly
0: and that one is beautifully painted and it Mm survives so well too and yet people see that and they don't equate it to the painted polychromy in classical antiquity Mm -hmm. because it can't possibly be on the same level it has to be better yes
1: Yes. clearly they can't be on the same level a ridiculous belief
0: but on the subject of repatriation i think one of the the hottest topics in the art history world these days is the elgin marbles Mm -hmm. i know everyone loves to talk about those and i i thought one of the last things i heard was that The British Museum had agreed to send them back to Greece. But a couple days ago, there were some new articles that surfaced saying that the, I think it was the president of the British Museum Mm -hmm. um, had only agreed to let them borrow them for a time being.
1: Yes, I remember that. And I think the feeling of insult of how can we borrow something that was ours?
0: Exactly. And so, I mean, even just in the past decade, the, the argument for repatriation of the Elgin marbles, which for those of you who might not know, those are the um, pediment sculptures that are on the Parthenon in Athens. And so it's a lot of scenes of, you know, the most common Greek gods that you probably know the names of. And they're beautifully rendered. They're excellent sculptures. And um, back when the Ottoman Empire took over Athens... Um, this this guy called Lord Elgin came in and he had a permit to do excavating Um, and this is kind of where the history gets kind of fuzzy Um, he was allowed to excavate during the Ottoman Empire's rule but he went in there and blew off the sculptures Mm -hmm. just chucked them off of the Parthenon and took them back to England with him and everyone rejoiced and thought that that was amazing because they're terrific sculptures and they have been in the British Museum for I don't I don't know how long too long
1: (laughs) maybe a century and a half
0: honestly probably but the the main argument for not returning them to Athens is that Athens up until like the past couple years actually did not have what you know Europe would consider a state-of-the-art facility to hold the marbles in Mm -hmm. and so Athens said you know what I'm gonna build an entire museum just for the marbles
1: that we don't have." And that's and what they did. It's stunning museum. I haven't had it's the honor to go. Beautiful photos in the yes. shop of the Acropolis. Mm-hmm. It is
0: a beautiful piece of architecture. And it's also a state-of-the-art facility for a museum. Yeah. And it is the exact outline of the Parthenon. And it's right next to the Acropolis. Where they
1: should go in context. In context. a yes. Big phrase in art history. <laughs> and it's just... I think the most recent argument I had heard now was even though they have the facilities as the uh, marbles are too old and delicate to Yes, because transporting from- Frankly is a genius move on their part because that claim only gets more valid with each year that passes because they only get older. And I think it just kind of shows how unfair, like there are clear- those with clear advantages and disadvantages in the museum world that you know, you know, say you, you know, just being told, them, "Oh, well, you cannot have them back because you don't have adequate facilities." Okay, let's build adequate facilities. Uh, well, now here's the next reason why you cannot have them back, and it can really just feel like you're running in circles or. You know you're just pushing the boulder up the hill every day only to have it roll back down on you
0: exactly it's just it's compounding reasons as to why they cannot be returned to their hometown and we we see this in so many other examples too where museums around the globe including like the met i think they're they're giving a lot of things back which is impressive because they own everything Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of other examples where institutions are repatriating their objects that were stolen over time um and we see that represented in a lot of media that we watch today like Black Panther I mean that was Mm -hmm. the whole beginning of that movie and so it's just a really hot topic these days I think personally Mm -hmm. that things should go back to their home country
1: yes Um,
0: and I think that might take a little bit longer than we hope but yeah just keep hoping um
1: I think we're at the precipice of a reckoning. And it's a very exciting time and also very intimidating because we have finally brought these conversations of who owns the past to an international scale. And I just don't think that there are, I'm not sure that there are simple answers that can leave everyone satisfied. And so I think it will be a series of difficult conversations and a series of important conversations about what we want our field to look like moving forward.
0: That is very well put. It's going to take a while, and it's not going to please everybody, but hopefully we can do the ethical thing and sort of repatriate what the Western world has colonized. But thank you so much for being on our show today, Meg. You've really brought a new perspective to this topic, and
1: Maybe thank we'll see so you again time. sometime soon. Oh, yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, art history people love to talk about art histories. So. <laughs> we do.